emigration is so natural to this universe everything is moving so nobody can really stop immigration migration immigration is how the entire universe and the nature operates so that's i'm a very firm believer in that and today in last 20 years yes there have been a talk of changing immigration laws and uh, immigration in the country but what has the really done in my opinion is it has actually increased the market size for immigration Hey everybody, what is going on? We are on episode number seven of the GMI Rocket Show, where we talk to immigration tech founders, entrepreneurs, executives, marketing experts, people who are growing the immigration space. I'm Roman Zalchenko, your host, the founder of Laborless and the founder of GMI Rocket. Um, and I'm so, so excited to have my guest today, Umesh Waidyamat, who is the CEO of INS Zoom. You've probably heard of INS Zoom if you've been to any immigration law event, especially an ALE event in the past, I don't know, 20 years. So I'm really excited to talk to Amesh about, you know, everything he's learned over two decades of building and growing an immigration tech company, what he's seen across multiple, you know, decades of fluctuation in immigration law and, you know, where INS Zoom is, where it's heading and really what Umesh thinks is the future of immigration tech especially from his point of view. So please welcome Umesh. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first of all, thank you, Roman, for uh, hosting this wonderful event. Uh, I think the story of uh, immigration legal tech was never told. I am really would like to congratulate you on this uh, initiative from uh, probably on behalf of uh, entire immigration legal tech community. I would like to really thank you for uh, putting an effort and uh, bringing everyone together. Thank you. I, really I, appreciate I appreciate that too. I mean, it was one of those things, you know, for me, the, the reason I really wanted to even start this um, podcast or this show and, 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 you know, podcast is because and we, we chatted about this a little bit earlier, but when I was building laborless and I really had ideas about immigration technology and I was starting to think about, you know, how do I do this? Where do I go? I didn't really have anywhere to turn to. There are so many amazing podcasts out there. You know, NPR, one of my favorites is NPR's How I Built This. I'm sure a lot of people listen to that one. Um, there are a lot of really good business podcasts, but of course, none of them were ever about the immigration space. And so what I had to do was listen to the podcasts and try to relate everything back to immigration. And But at the same time, there are people like you and others who just have built it, have done it. You have all the insights. You have so much amazing information, such a great story. So I'm so excited to, you know, to dive into that. And, and so obviously, especially in the immigration space, obviously people know you as the CEO of, of INS Zoom. But what's fun for me is to think about always, how did you get to the point of, of starting the company? And, and I'll get to this later, but as a sneak peek, you started it in your garage. So very much the Apple you know, story of tinkering in your garage and, you know, in your home in California and turning it into what it is today. Um, but, I, you know, before going back a little bit, you know, before you even started INS Zoom, you came to America as, you know, a foreign national on an H-1B visa. Is that right? right? And mm -hmm. so you were basically, you were the person that now your clients are servicing. So what was that experience like? And what was it like for you to come to the U.S. for the first time? Sure. I graduated in India in 1989 and uh, arrived in the United States in uh, 1990. I was working for a company that's based out of Mumbai. Also, they had operations in the United States. 
So I came here as a software engineer uh, working with them, and I was posted in Kansas City. So for me, when I came, I didn't know anything about immigration or visas. So it was a very interesting experience. I didn't even know what H1 was, what a business visa was, what a green card was. I had no idea. So I had just come to this country, and when my H1 got to be transferred from one company to another company during those days, like it would take literally a week or maybe maximum two weeks. And you just had one form, you had to fill it up. And uh, immigration was never a challenge that time. And all you had to do is fill up a form and it is done. And you would get to reach and transfer. There was no uh, quota. And everything was just easy that time, as far as I remember. So, That's amazing. Um, it's so yeah. It's crazy to think about how different it was back then. What was it like to go to Kansas City? Was that... Well, actually, let me back up. Was that your first time in the U.S. when you came to Kansas City, or did you come yes. here before? No, that was my first time in the United States. United States. Or for that matter, leaving uh, my home country, India. Okay. So, what did you What did you think when you got to Kansas City? Like, interestingly, I landed in the United States on July 4th evening. And wow. uh, I didn't know that... Uh, that day was the America's Independence Day. So on my flight is landing and I could see firecrackers uh, lighting up the sky in Kansas City. I was like, what, what is going on? <laughs> is America happy that I'm here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's your, uh, you didn't know that, but that was your welcome party from the company. That's my welcome party. That's yeah. so cool. No way. That's so funny. Were you flying above the fireworks or was it just because that would be i've never seen that it probably looks really cool from above right now when i was about to land i could see there was a okay. fireworks happening in the city then uh, i then i asked uh, a, uh, a hostess you know what's happening then she said today is uh, america's independence day wow so, so that is a great day for me to come to this country what an introduction that's amazing um so okay so you came here in an h1b you know you were working with a, a company that what for initially sponsored you, then you said you had an H1B transfer. What, you know, how long did it take for you to, I guess, become, you know, get your green card and, and go through that whole process? And, and sort of at what point did you start thinking about immigration as, you know, an industry as something that presents challenges that maybe needs a solution? Like how, how did those, how did those things happen? For me, right along when I was in college, when I was doing my computer science engineering, I always wanted to build a software product. That was my passion. Mm-hmm. So the, it was basically what I'm going to build. So first product I tried to build was when I was in college uh, for a banking software I built when I was in India. Mm-hmm. And the product was built, but uh, I really could not sell it to enough customers. That's mm-hmm. what basically drove me from uh, my hometown where I was doing that to Mumbai. Wow. And in Mumbai, I got a job. Then I came to United States. But still, the passion in me to build a product uh, was still you know, very much alive inside me. So I was just thinking of different ideas. So in 1992, I built another product in the United States uh, when I was working. So again, the same challenge. I didn't know how to sell a product. I didn't know whom to approach. So I had built a product because I was an engineer. So it was easy to build things for me. And I was creative to come up with ideas. And uh, even that product, I could not really put it to the market. Mm-hmm. So that way, Ionism is my third attempt at uh, being wow. an entrepreneur. That is not the first one. What are the first? Can you do you remember what the first two products were? Yeah, first product was in '89 when I was in college. 
it is called uh, it's called share accounting uh, software for a uh, uh, credit unions in mm. india mm. so that is the first one second one was uh, in 92 i built uh, that is uh, it would generate uh, code uh, if you put few parameters it could generate uh, cobol code for uh, our large enterprises mm-hmm. so that is the second product that i had built and uh, third product is uh, an inazon Wow. So it is just uh, for like for me that passion was okay. I wanted to build a product. I wanted to offer uh, uh, those uh, my innovation, my ideas to the uh, larger audience. Mm-hmm. So the third product was basically as Ionazoom that I built. And how how did you come to think of Ionazoom? I mean, I imagine it's because of your own immigration process. Was it because you were working with an attorney and you saw that the attorney had a lot of paperwork, or you know, what kind of Really, what sparked that idea versus really anything else? It is interesting. Uh, during uh, late nineties, America was going through dot com boom. Mm-hmm. So everybody in Silicon Valley for a software engineer, and you wanted to build a product. And for me, I wanted to build something. So I was looking for ideas. Okay, hey, what is that we could do? And uh, I had another one of my brother. His name is Shiva Vaidyamat. He's also an entrepreneur, and right now he's in India. he uh, uh, runs his own uh, staffing business uh, in bangalore so he was in the united states and me and him we would always brainstorm ideas okay what is that we can build what are the problems we can solve so one fine day he comes to me and he says hey there is an immigration attorney in san francisco and uh, he wants a website to be built come with me maybe we can go and talk to him maybe we will find a problem to solve there or maybe we can help him so i had no interest in building a website because for my passion was building a product mm-hmm. then i just wanted to help my brother out i said okay let me come with you let's see what's out there one who went back and starts speaking to this immigration attorney my first question was tell me why do you need a website and his answer was i see there are law firms like one was he mentioned a murti.com shila murti who had become super super successful with a great website then he talked about greeks scan he also had an a website and uh, one more is a call system and i believe with the folks where that build their business on immigration so i'm building immigration websites and providing free legal content mm. to consumers so that's a huge that time so they said look i want to have a website and uh, where i would like to attract a new customers then i told him you already they already built so you will be copying you are not going to get attraction like the way they did so we need to come up with something else for you if we, if your intention is to do a business a development we need to come up with a different idea then a uh, couple of days back i had seen uh, federal express uh, a package that came to my house and it had a tracking number on a shipment and it would give you the status on uh, federal express website if you go to fedex.com and put a tracking number they would tell you where exactly what a case status we are a shipping status was So during the conversation, I told this attorney, instead of doing that, how about one of the problem I see with immigration law firms is I have gone through the same process where our green cards are being applied or H-1B is being applied. There is a it is almost like it goes in a dark hole. We don't know what is happening with our case status. We call you, you guys are busy. So why don't you provide a case status to your customers? So that they know exactly where their H-1B case status is, where their green card case status is. Or even their labor certification statuses, right? So that he's that really got him excited. So then he said, "Yes, I think that sounds like a great idea. 
how can I do this? I said, okay, you know what? I can uh, build a, a module and it's going to cost you $30,000. And uh, if you are willing, then we'll get that built for you in a couple of weeks. That's what I told him. Then uh, he said, yeah, I, I would love to do that. So me and my brother, we come home. Then we, we thought we'll just build this as some money that we'll do it on the side. So along with our full-time jobs. So when I was doing that, after a week, I started realizing, hmm, maybe this is something we can turn this into a product. We don't have to just make it this as an, uh, give it to one law firm. So when I went to meet him next time, I said, you know what? How about we basically build this product, uh, make this a product, and you can be our customer too. And uh, uh, you don't need to pay anything for this. And I, I will take all the expenses. Then he said, now, uh, I would like to be a partner in this uh, uh, venture. That's another thing he offered. Then I wasn't sure whether it is a right partnership for us because he's an attorney, he's busy. I'm an engineer. So I said, okay, we can talk about it, but would he be interested in being my first customer? He said, yeah, he'll be interested. So that's how Ionizum was born. So initial idea for Ionizum was not a case management what you're thinking of today. It was just supposed to be a foreign national portal where foreign nationals come, they check their case status and see where it is. That's it, nothing else. So the first version for Ionizum was just a, Two modules, one for the foreign nationals, another module for a law. Immigration attorneys and parallels to go back and update the status. It did not do anything else. That was as simple as that. And interestingly, I spoke to several other immigration attorneys in uh, San Francisco about this idea while I was still building it. Because I had learned with my past two experiences where I had built the product, tried to sell. This time, while I was building, I started speaking to customers, hey, prospects, hey, would you be interested in this idea? So I started validating my idea whether it's something they're willing to pay for it. So I had another four or five law firms who were interested in uh, this module. So in three weeks, I was able to get this product out. Then I uh, connected with these customers. And even another change we did was we didn't want to sell the software those days. Remember, SaaS was a very new concept. Mm -hmm. so Salesforce had started uh, their services. It was 99, 2000 time. So we made Ionizum also as a uh, SaaS product where you pay a monthly subscription fees and uh, use it. And it's always available to you. And it's not given by license. You don't have to pay a uh, uh, maintenance fee or anything. It's, uh, it's always available on the internet, on the cloud. So that's how Ionizum was born uh, as a simple case tracking software with, uh, I had around 25 screens, that's it. Uh, the first module that was released to the customer. And the best part is we had paying customers. Mm -hmm. So we did not offer the product for free. It was a paying uh, service that uh, we charged to our customers. That, that's so, I mean, there are so many lessons there. The first thing that I thought about was how you came up with the idea, or at least you were inspired by the FedEx tracking number. You know, to me, that's such a lesson of, um, getting inspiration from other places. No idea, no idea is ever purely from nothing. It's always a combination of different things. So you combine your experience in immigration, what you heard from this lawyer, what FedEx was doing in a totally different industry. And you said, why don't we put some of these things together and create something new out of it? So, you know, I, I think from maybe this is for, I'm saying this for myself, but I think a lot of people who start businesses think that they have to build something completely radically new, but the reality is a lot of times it's combining things that work in other different places together and in, into a place where it doesn't exist yet. 
Um, I, you know, I, I, to me, that that was such an interesting, interesting thing. But the other thing is, to your point, you had. I love the idea of before this, you built everything and then started to sell it. But now, common, you know, business practice says validate, validate, validate from day one. If you just have the idea on paper, validate it. Just to think it's here, it's not crazy. And then as you're building it, start validating more and and get interest and things like that. Um, do you think because you know you guys have never raised any money and obviously you had paying clients, I, su- I suppose from day one. Do you think that this is something that you? But there are a lot. Everyone now gets venture capital, so I guess this is jumping ahead a little bit. But you know, what are you, what are your thoughts about building a business? Kind of how you did it, where you incrementally build something that people are interested in paying for, versus getting a ton of money right away building something and then kind of figuring it out. I think it depends on the product and the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say I was lucky enough. I was able to bootstrap the product without taking any money from outside because I myself was an engineer. And uh, the best part is uh, my wife also was a software engineer. So right. I had an additional resource. Then uh, my brother, elder brother, who works with me in Ionism right now, his name is Raj Vaidham, he's also an engineer. So they all contributed to my initial ideas. So I had this, uh, I would say, family resources mm-hmm. that kind of pushed in for me to build my initial code. So I didn't have to leave focus on uh, getting any funding from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But along with that, this idea of that something we started as a small, it really did not require additional funding, what I was doing. So I was able to reach out to the customers, then I was able to basically and make some calls and visit them in San Francisco downtown. Some of these prospects were in the right here in the city. So I started validating with them what they like, whether they are uh, happy with what I'm proposing or listen to them, whether there's anything else they would need. Mm-hmm. So uh, depending on the product that you're pe- uh, uh, building, uh, you may have to take funding. Because if you take the funding, the biggest advantage is you will be able to scale faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? So. For us, again, you have to look at your, your competitive landscape. And if you think that you can do without the money, then I would say do without the money, right? Because you don't want to dilute your uh, uh, shares and stocks in the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you think you really need to do it because your competition is basically going much, much ahead of you without those dollars, you cannot compete, then I would recommend you, know, you getting some money uh, from uh, seed investors or maybe from... Uh, private equity or even the VCs. Mm-hmm. So, but I would not recommend it is just go and get the money because just for the uh, sake of it, you have to basically have a plan. Otherwise, you are going to just dilute you know, uh, your equity in the company. I know a friend of mine, uh, he kept on taking funding again and again. Then uh, after seven and eight years, he had left so less equity when he had an exit. And he, it wasn't even worth it for him. Wow. So you have to be very careful on when you liquidate your uh, equity. It's very important. Uh, so, I mean, if you have to do it, do it. I'm not saying we should not do it. It really helps. So, but for uh, early years of uh, Ionozone, the competitors we had, some of them were well-funded and some of them were not. But the rate at which we were able to grow, the rate at which we were able to sign up customers, and I realized I don't need to really need money from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But if I'd seen that I'm struggling because I lack funds, then I would have reached out to someone to uh, give me funds. But I was able to really look at my competition and look at how Ionism was doing. Then I decided, you know what? 
you know, we can do all without taking any money from uh, uh, outside. And probably, and probably as you're building a company, if you can get to at least some level of growth on your own, that looks really good for when you're going to go out to get money because they know that you can be very resourceful yep. um, versus, you know, people who get funding immediately from day one. You've, you've heard there are success stories, but there are, of course, also stories where, you know, they blow their money on things that was unreasonable. But anyway, I, I just think that's interesting because as obviously we're seeing more immigration companies taking outside funding, which I think is great on various levels, but obviously it's just a different way of operating the business. Okay, but I, I wanna I wanna kind of scale it back a little bit again, uh, because you okay, so you launched Ina Zoom. It was a family business. I guess it's kind of still, you know, you're still working with some folks in your family, uh, which is really, really nice. You know, you had your first few clients that were paying as they were as you were building for them, you were trying to you were getting interest from other clients. And so Ina Zoom was slowly taking step after step after step. Um, but then of course, or this probably was during the dot com bubble bursting. Um, and then, and then after that, I mean, now it's 2020. So you, you went through that and you continued to grow. Um, how did you get through that first sort of recession, uh, you know, as a very young company, I guess. And then maybe if you can walk me through a little bit, what that next decade was like until we hit 2008, uh, where there was another recession sort of, how did you get through that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, if I remember in uh, 2000, is one were really making some noise in the market and I uh, were able to get some customers and dot uh, com burst happened and recession started hitting in. So we faced two challenges that time. One was uh, since most of the dot com companies were going out of business, which are basically cloud based, just like I know. So customers were questioning me, hey, how do I know that I is going to be around a year from now? Mm-hmm. Right? That's one. Then um, second challenge that also we faced was uh, getting uh, having the prospect to trust Inazoom that will save keep their data safe. Mm-hmm. So there is no magic that I could do to make them trust me. But I was able to talk to this law firm saying, listen, the future is going to be the cloud. So your computers and your uh, software, all of them in the future, they'll be offered on the cloud. And this is the future. What we're offering at Ionizum is the future. Mm-hmm. So some of the law firms basically who were able to see the, the future, they start signing up with Ionizum. So though there is a money was tight, remember the first two years I knew that I will not be able to make enough money to pay for our expenses and everything. So I was not making any salary, anything out of the company. This is something that I'm doing uh, on my own. Mm-hmm. So for two and a half years is when we were able to hit the uh, break-even point. So all I had to do was to stay around, focus on the customers, and uh, spend more time knowing what they're looking for. So there's a time when I started with just a case tracking software and to slowly start expanding into adding other features into the product. So customers were still willing to pay and buy the software because they realized that they need to have software to improve their efficiency. Mm-hmm. So we're able to basically keep on adding more features to the product and having uh, uh, listen to the customers. And again, these customers are paying customers. It's not that you know we're giving a trial software to anyone. So from day one, every customer that we had, we never gave anyone free. We always made sure that 
we charged the customer at a monthly subscription price. Then when they wanted some uh, feature to be built, since he was a paying customer, and uh, we were able to go back and keep adding those features. It's just uh, our uh, philosophy of Zoom and listen and deliver. So I think that really helped us to get through our uh, uh, initial uh, first uh, recession. Mm-hmm. So we added the new features and uh, we added uh, new modules to the product. And that really helped us to continue to add more customers. I think most important thing is during the recession is a time when that happens, things may slow down, but everyone at that time would like to tighten their belt. They like to improve the efficiency. That's where I think software firms can really play an important role. Mm-hmm. You know what? If you use technology, you can improve your efficiency. So if you can basically offer a solution that will truly solve the customer's problem, they'll pay and they'll come on board. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing that now too, right? And during uh, the COVID crisis where some of the companies that are the most successful are companies like Slack, you know, Microsoft, they up their game with Teams. Zoom, yep. obviously, Zoom has is, is become a verb. It's no yep. longer just the name of a company. So, yep. you know, to your point, it's it's enabling what perhaps the company wanted to work on earlier, but wasn't able to because they were so busy and they were doing, you know, one thing or another. Um, so, so once you got so, you know, eight years later, we hit two thousand and eight, and there's another there's a financial crisis. You know, there's the Great Recession, as they as they call it. Uh, so obviously, that was another challenging time. Do you think that you took the same approach at that time and you just, you know, you kept going at it in terms of that philosophy or did you do anything different at that point? Because now it's your second rodeo. So you kind of know what to deal with and how to look at it. Right. We kept focused on our customers. I think that's where we never took our eyes off our customers. Mm-hmm. So being actively involved with our customers, understanding what they're looking for and uh, adding those uh, modules to your customers it basically helps you succeed, which is basically your innovation. So during that time is when Ionozoom, we started pushing more on our enterprise edition of the product. So we built in uh, more modules and features that uh, larger law firms and uh, law firms who are very, who are, would like to adopt technology to the next level. So we we basically built, we invested in our uh, enterprise edition of Ionozoom. That's what basically helped us to push through the second recession. So we didn't even feel that it was a recession because though some of our customers were reducing their licenses, but along with that, there's still a market out there, bigger firms that are out there, and they wanted to increase the efficiency. Even their corporations, they wanted to put a system around their immigration processes. Mm-hmm. So we're able to go after uh, bigger law firms and as well as bigger corporations to adopt technology. So that is a time where it's again innovation that basically helped us to uh, whether the uh, recession again same thing applies to my customers as well some of them were drip, you know it hit them but they took that opportunity to figure out retool themselves come up with a different marketing strategy and uh, come up with a different way of telling their firm story and uh, adopting better technology adopting uh, better practice in the firm so they all when things slow down it gives an opportunity for you to sit back and think through, hold on a minute. Now, I don't I don't have to run. Let me see what is the best I can do mm-hmm. to help our customers. And what is that is uh, hurting my customers today so that I can take those problems and solve them. And at that time, if you want to build those tools and features, customers will still uh, uh, buy them. 
I mean, yeah. if you look at the example is with the COVID-19 happening, I think some of the companies who are reluctant to adopt your laborless, I'm sure they have jumped on, right? Though things are uncertain, but if there is a value for a product, customers will buy and they will invest in it. So it's all about basically solving a customer's problem. What gave you the confidence, you know, to go for the first time to the, that bigger, that next big client or the first big client? You know, you've worked with, let's say you were working with a lot of smaller clients. You know, I'm curious, kind of maybe from a mindset perspective, because I think a lot of startups in any industry would be interested. How do you approach that first big client? You know, you kind of have to put on your big, big boy suit and say, I can play with the wolves. I'm just curious if you, if you have any thoughts on that. One of the marketing strategy we had at Ionism was uh, a happy customer is our uh, slogan for marketing. So we never had a marketing person and uh, we just wanted to make sure every customer that we sign up is a happy customer. Mm -hmm. That's why. And uh, some of these customers that were working on our, uh, our client side, they started moving to uh, larger law firms. So they became our brand ambassadors. So that's how we start getting uh, recognition from the bigger firms, number one. Mm. Second one is we used to go to a lot of ILA conferences. And in ILA conference, you know, we have a booth, we do a demo for a product. So that also gave us uh, traction with uh, some of the bigger players in the, in the market. So they would stop by our booth. Or I would uh, I knew that, hey, here's a certain law firms that were uh, bigger firms in the country. So, and if I saw them in the ILA conference with their name badge, then I would try to go back and strike an association and speak to them about how what Ionism can do, how it could help. Mm. So this is the what I was doing in the early days. But after 2007 and 2008, it became much easier because we had well established in the market and uh, customers knew about it. And even the larger, many large law firms, they were knocking on our doors. And many of the law firms that we have as a customers today who are really big, they weren't big in those days. True. I mean, we, you know, I, I know, we're very instrumental in their success. We work with them hand to hand. When I talked about, a, we built an enterprise edition in 2007 and 2008, it is because some of these law firms, customers that I had, they were growing and they were looking for a newer features to win a new RFP or a, they were working to get a new uh, large corporate customer. So we're helping them to building tech, technology tools so that they come across uh, uh, much stronger in uh, their uh, pitch to the corporate customer. In many of those situations, I have personally gone and done a demo of I and a Zoom on behalf of my customer. And we have won many of those deals. And some of these large law firms we have as a customer today. And they are with us even till today because we help them win those deals and we help them stay, uh, keep those uh, accounts by constantly innovating with technology. So it is just a philosophy is to basically ensure that our customers succeed. If they succeed, then we succeed. And uh, even today, and for any business to succeed or any idea to succeed, if your customers succeed, they are going to grow. When they grow, and you grow along with them. I love so that. So some law firms I know today, and they had only 10 user license when this, I signed them up in 2002. And today they have 170 IAM users and with Amazon. So and I'm very proud that it's just one example. There are many firms that we work with who have been a success story for them. We work hand to hand. And, uh, and again, I would like to really thank my customers because 
one who built these modules, one who introduced enterprise edition, though fees were much higher and uh, they were basically were supporting us. They did not try to come back, oh, you know what, I'm not going to pay you that kind of money. They said, Omesh, if you can build it, it definitely adds a value to my practice and we're good. Mm -hmm. So this constant support from uh, immigration law firms and some of the corporations that I was working with, it helped us to build our enterprise edition of the product. Uh, then you know, that helped us to increase our revenue and uh, still stay profitable. It's so that we didn't have to go and raise funds at all. It's a really good lesson also to think about how if a startup has clients that are smaller, because you know typically it really large enterprises or they're they they do not very often go with a very very small startup just for various reasons um, but it's important to think that if you know just if you keep at it your clients will grow and as your clients grow you will just grow with them um, and so to your point and, and if you can help them grow that's even better because that's more of symbiosis in that relationship yep. um it's a really really good lesson you know i think to that to that question you know coming to where we are today after the last recession, and obviously since then, we've had different presidential, you know, we've had different presidents. Now we have the Trump administration, which has been presented challenges to the immigration industry. Um, you know, during the Obama and previous to that, there are always some pull and tug of um, push and pull in the immigration space. One thing that I obviously we are all hearing because we're in the industry is people are worried and people don't know what's going to happen. And even with what's already happened, there's, I've talked to immigration lawyers who are thinking about leaving the practice because either they're frustrated or they're really losing business, et cetera. What's, what are some, you know, thoughts that you have or, or some recommendations seeing, having gone through different political parties and, and maybe past challenges to the immigration space if you have any, what do you think these folks should be thinking about in terms of what immigration is going to look like? I've been in last, uh, I mean, I've been in this country for the last 30 years. And uh, in 1992, uh, George Bush Sr., uh, he expanded green card quota for software professionals. And I was able to get my green card within actually nine months. Wow. And uh, that would typically take around three years during that time for a engineers, either software engineer, engineer in Silicon Valley, that's how it was. And uh, that's how quick you know, we were able to get green cards during those days. And today, you know, people are waiting for a green card for even 15 years right now, and it's crazy. But one thing that uh, I have seen is uh, immigration is so natural to this universe. Everything is moving. So nobody can really stop immigration. Migration, immigration is how the entire universe and the nature operates. So that's, I'm a very firm believer in that. And uh, today, in the last 20 years, yes, there have been a talk of changing immigration uh, uh, laws and uh, immigration in the country. But what has really done, in my opinion, is it has actually increased the market size for immigration. It has brought more education at every level. Uh, I remember in uh, 92, when I was getting my H1 and green card done, HR managers didn't even know what uh, green card meant, what is a labor certification was. And today, you'll see there are more folks in um, most of the companies who understand what this immigration means and what a perm process is, what I-140 is, right? And what a green card is and what H1B is, what LCA is, what an L1s are, right? The, people are learning about this more than ever before. So 
I don't think if someone is struggling today for immigration because of the rules, there are other opportunities that are coming up in this industry. So that's something that we have to look out. There is always something that can be done. We need to get more creative. If we're doing the same thing for too long, you will not succeed. We have you have to keep changing the way you operate, and we have to be innovative. I mean, just leave a immigration law firms or even I in a Zoom. Let's look at Microsoft, such a successful company. Ten years back, they were. I thought they were going to go down. Uh, literally, I thought that's going to happen. In last five years, and they changed the whole thing. What did they do? Right? They are in cloud today. Mm-hmm. They brought Azure. Right? So any company or any business or any individual, we have to innovate. Innovation is a way for us to be relevant and stick around. Things are going to change. Like for us, all the change that they came in immigration, I always looked at it as an opportunity. Like Trump's immigration bans, all of this, it is basically an opportunity for us to solve the problem so that we have to help our customers, so that our customers can help the foreign nationals and others. This is a challenge going to come. They are not going to stop. And uh, the market for immigration itself is growing worldwide. Like, let's take in India itself. And 15 years back, you go to India, Indian immigration was handled by uh, cops, hmm. greeted by cops, and uh, they didn't even know how to deal with uh, people visiting. And today, India has a formal immigration department. There are people who are trained in immigration. There are visas for a business. There's a visas for short-term work permit. There are visas, again, Indian government is planning for a citizenship amendment. What all the shows? So immigration is going to become and a huge opportunity as the time passes. Every country is going to formalize these processes in their country to make immigration better for uh, their uh, improve their economy and as well as uh, the success of their own countries. So I see that immigration markets will grow. Let's look at ILA itself. When we started INZOOM in uh, 2000, the membership was around 6,500 people. Uh, I would say around that or maybe less. And today, ILA membership is you know, over 15,000 attorneys. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost close to three times in three in uh, 20 years. So it's growing. So anybody who's struggling, I would look at it is a small dip you're going to go through, but use this time to re-innovate and you know, do something different. That's going to basically make your firm look you know, stand apart different from the uh, rest of the competition. One thing I was thinking about too, you know, I'm, I'm very big on marketing and I love doing different things in industries, even this, in this show, this podcast being one of them. I think for, for immigration law firms or any industry right now, it's also a really good time to just try something new and different and almost wacky and crazy because everything is so different right now that if you come up with, you know, if you're a traditional immigration law firm, and all of a sudden you're doing webinars or you have an ebook or you're doing some kind of a, you know, an online game show where somebody wins a 15 minute consultation with you if they get all the points, you know, something totally not normal for our industry. It would be taken right now in stride because there are so many changes happening and everyone recognizes that because it's a, there's an economic downturn and because it's challenging, people recognize that businesses are trying new things. But I think because they recognize that, they're more forgiving for something new and different and out of the box. And it's really interesting. I think it could be a really good time for creative people to 
you know, who run businesses or, or even who are supporting businesses in a marketing role um, or business development role to just go out there and do something crazy uh, and, and, and see what sticks. And I think that to me is part of the retooling process. Automation for sure, right? Go and look at your process. And if you've been go, go, go this whole time, now all of a sudden things have slowed down. You could go back and clean up your folders, get rid of that paperwork, put it on the cloud. Um, look at what what process you've been handling on a spreadsheet and see if there's a tool that can help you handle that. That's all for sure. And then the second thing for me that's interesting is this marketing piece, right? How do you brand yourself? How do you show the world who you are and how you're different from your competitors in a really new and innovative way? Um, so I think to me, it, th- this is also an opportunity for that. But it requires you to believe that you will come out of this with a business remaining. So yep. I think that's the first thing people have to realize that if you're really hanging by a thread, you know, and your business wasn't going well beforehand, then right now it's not going to be a happy time. But if you've just slowed down, but you know, you'll make it over the next half year, one year, maybe two years on a slower pace, but you know, you'll come out of this. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting time. What I would recommend is um, when you run a business, always anticipate there's going to be slowdown. There's going to be recession. As long as, you keep your cost down and always keep focusing on the efficiency within the company by using the best way to increase efficiency in the firm is technology. That is the best friend for you to increase efficiency. As long as you are always keep in mind, hey, recession can hit anytime or I might lose one of my big customer. Just keep that in your mind. You don't want to lose the big customer, but it can happen. So as long as you keep planning that it could happen, then you can really you'll be around forever. You don't need to worry about it. So anticipate slowdown will happen. Second is innovate and focus on efficiency. And again, you brought up a good point of marketing. So you you have to have a good marketing engine to basically, I'm not saying that you need to put hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm saying put a focus on using technology to market your firms because most of the time today, people are going to find you on the internet. They're going to look at uh, your website. They're going to see your website is what is, they're going to perceive who you are. And very rarely people are going to come in person see you. So it's important to have a, a good marketing, uh, I would say storefront for your business, whether it's a technology or even immigration law firm. Mm-hmm. It, it's very important. That's how you tell your story, who you are. So I think as long as you are done, you anticipate, I think we shouldn't have a, when a and anybody business should be able to thrive and survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and even even more so right now than before. LinkedIn, YouTube, all these platforms, because we can't go to in person conferences, we can't go to in person coffee meetings. You know, have your coffee meetings virtually, kind of like you and I are having right now. Um, so you know, it's, it's a really good segue. I want to I want to kind of jump into one of the questions that have come out. Uh, looking forward, right? I'm really interested in the future of the immigration space. We've talked a little bit about how people can think about the future, you know, getting over this hump, right? But what if we look five or 10 years down the line? And I'm I'm asking this because uh, one of our viewers, Abhi Chala, asks, um, generally, he asks specifically, so another company recently called Immigration Tracker, there was an acquisition. What do you make of the tracker acquisition? You know, to me, it's a little bit more of an even general question of, what are your thoughts on, and I'm curious too, what are your thoughts in general of M&A or just these kind of corporate events in the immigration space? 
you know, do you think that it'll happen more in the future? Do you think there's a place for it? If the immigration market is growing, that means that, and, and you know, we're seeing more entrants coming in, doing different things. Um, where do you think acquisition or mergers come into play going into, into the future? 10 years back, there was literally no one to acquire immigration law firms, sorry, immigration tech companies. I mean, based on the market and what would, and the legal tech was almost non-existent. Um, but today, even in immigration itself, there are a lot of companies coming up. That's very promising, which means there's a lot of innovation happening and uh, this market is going to grow. So, which means the M&A will start happening now. So, and our tracker got acquired recently by Mitra Tech. So it is an example. So means investors are watching uh, uh, what's happening in immigration legal tech. That is a great sign. So anybody out there who's planned to build their own immigration legal tech product, I think you, you are on the right time right now. So in pretty soon, in a few years, there are going to be a lot of M&A is going to happen in this space because this global immigration market itself is going to grow. And uh, what we have today and another five years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to be much, much huge. And definitely there's going to be space for uh, innovation, for new ideas and new product companies and opportunity for M&A. So that's what I see in, uh, in uh, coming soon. I, you know, I, I agree. And, and I think whether it's an acquisition or even a VC investment where somebody from outside the immigration industry is looking at putting their money into and putting trust behind an immigration tech company, that means they're seeing, they're, first of all, that they're paying attention. That's number one. Yep. But number two, they've noticed it and they also think that there's some promise, that there's some growth to it. You know, I think uh, it's one thing to say that somebody who is not in the immigration space might not exactly know the nuances. But on the other hand, a venture capitalist sees the world at an even higher level. And so if somebody like that has at least some trust in the project in the trajectory of this industry, um, I, I think it's a good sign for everyone, whether or not someone is looking to be acquired or in get investment dollars, just the idea is that it is growing and everyone is growing together. Um, I, I, it also kind of, this kind of goes into a, another question because, you know, obviously acquisition typically comes from the value that you bring to another organization, uh, how much you've been scaling, how quickly you've been scaling, et cetera. Um, you know, this question is what has been your biggest life lesson scaling INS Zoom? The biggest life lesson as uh, I was speaking to you before, if you have an idea before you build it, validate mm -hmm. with the potentially who's willing to pay for it. Remember the first two products I built, I did not talk to anybody who would pay for me. I just built the product. That is the easiest part. The getting customers is the hardest part. So the best way to do is going to be have a conversation with some prospects and listen to them. It is something that they will be willing to buy if you basically build that. And if the customer, if the prospect or whom you're speaking to, if he says, look, I'm not, he doesn't want to pay, give me for free, then you are speaking to a wrong prospect. Because if your solution does not solve a problem for him, then he's not going to pay for it. So find customers who are struggling with the problem and your solution, if it can solve the problem, 
then work with them and uh, you don't need to offer your services for free that's something that we did from day one our service was never offered free even today one customer said, oh, give me free for this i would tell them listen i will solve problem for you i will make you more efficient i will increase your efficiency by 10% 20% 30% look at how much money you are saving and my software cost is almost very little if you compare with that so we focus on in a truly solving the customer problem i think if we can go on solving customer problems don't worry about the discounting your product so i think if this is done i think you can always grow and uh, be around in the industry for a long time yeah that's a it's a, it's a great you know the way to scale is scale sustainably i guess yep you know i had a friend of mine just to you know he built a product and he didn't succeed i asked him what happened then uh, when he was building the product he was speaking to subject matter experts in that industry as opposed to to the prospects hmm. so that's why i told him why did you speak to sme because he's going to just keep on telling his ideas but you need to speak to someone who is going who is struggling with that problem so i think that's where you know if you can basically identify a customers who have a challenge you build a solution and they will pay and you will be able to grow along with them it's as simple as that yeah and sometimes people don't even realize a subject matter expert might be so technically minded that the problems they think exist don't actually exist in the world and something that exists is something that the SME wouldn't even have noticed i i think about from the user experience perspective too you might build something assuming that a user is going to use your product a certain way and then you give it to them and they do something completely differently and then you're thinking to, in your head but this doesn't make sense the button clearly is here but for some reason they go there and 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 yeah i mean to your point you can never really know if you're operating on assumptions you're going to lose at some point but if you're operating on actual information even if it's a slower process maybe and it's more incremental every step of the way you know you're taking with sort of validation behind it um yeah i i i love that it's a really interesting juxtaposition uh, what is that person doing now are they still do they have another company or do they work somewhere i'm just curious No, he's right now working somewhere else. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think when when you are kind of you know passionate about building a new product, right? It's very important that you know we speak to folks who are uh, entrepreneurs in the past. You learn a lot. I mean, reason how I learned that I should speak to a prospect. Uh, there was uh, when I was working on a job on a company, and that company sold a software to the corporation that I was working for. so since it was their second customer i was had the opportunity to i was on the project so i had the opportunity to work with that company founder and a ceo mm. so one hours it is it is in mid 90s so i asked him how did you come up with the idea how did you get this customers and he told me his story that when they had an idea they went back and talked to one this large corporate corporation in the east coast and the company liked their idea and these folks went back in their house they built it with literally no funding and went back and uh, gave that product and that was their first 2 million dollar order then they came to the company that I was working for and our company was a 3 million dollar order for them wow so our second customer right so that actually inspired me that hey that's when i realized about and what i did wrong was i was not speaking to paying prospects i was just imagining things i was just building products so i have to speak to people who are willing to pay 
and build what they are looking for. So that is basically where my inspiration comes from. And uh, that company is right now is publicly traded. Uh, and uh, uh, you must have heard about MicroStrategy. Yeah. Yeah. So it is in the uh, uh, East Coast in Washington, D.C. area. So I had the opportunity to work with uh, the founder and CEO of uh, uh, MicroStrategy in the so, early days. So when you were working, you were micro, your com- the company you were working at was MicroStrategy's second client ever? Yep. Wow. That is cool. Yep. You know, it, it's also interesting because I think sometimes with pricing, you know, because there are always going to be clients or prospects that want something for free or for much cheaper. I think, uh, especially lawyers, you know, I say that as a lawyer myself, but, you know, lawyers want a process, but we also are a service industry. And so we need to make sure that financials are being managed correctly. But I think with software, um, we get what you pay for in a way. If you want something that's cheaper, free, how do you expect the, comp- the people on the other end to support your use of the software and to give you the, you know, the bug fixes and to give you the new features that that you want if you don't pay? I think there's a disconnect. You know, I think with a service industry, it, you say, Umesh, paint me a paint me a painting, and I'll give you a thousand dollars. I give you a thousand dollars, and you give me a canvas with oil on it, and so I I know what you what I paid for. With software, on the one hand, the product itself is scalable. You can have one user, you can have a million users. You know, generally speaking, it's kind of the same thing. So, but but the business of software is the support. It's the continuous innovation and the continuous fixing and the continuous addition of things and the the um, you know kind of R and D, the research and development. So, I feel like part of the conversations that I, I like to have is just reframing the mind of the immigration industry to say, look. If we don't invest in technology, we're not going to get good technology. Um, we want, we need to be able to say this is not a, um, you know, forgotten about expense. This should be something at the top of my list to really put my resources behind. Because if I do that, I'm going to have really, really good results. Everyone, all of us, will want things free, right? <laughs> but uh, right, there's there's no doubt. But. Uh, when you have a product or a feature that you want to sell additional price to that, you, we need to be able to convince the customer that really solve the problem. If it cannot solve the problem, they will not value it, they will not pay. So we, we need to focus on solving the problem and educating the customers. So the biggest challenge that we had in Farayanus in the early days was we were in the cloud and uh, all the software that being sold on the market that time was uh, and a desktop-based software. And uh, even uh, our competition was trying to tell a story that, hey, having your uh, data on the cloud is, uh, you know, you have a risk of losing your data. Could be, could get hacked or whatever it is, right? So we had to educate our customers saying that, listen, cloud is the future. And our software is the future. Having a software in your desktop, it's more expensive for you to upgrade. You will not get the latest updates on time. And you don't you have to deal with the software maintenance. You don't have to do any of this stuff, right? So you need to be able to really educate your customers. If you educate them enough, then when they see a value and they'll come on board. It's it's very important that you educate them customers as much as you can. If the education doesn't happen, then uh, it uh, would impact the value of your product and a customer will not be willing to pay the price that you're asking for. So if I can have, if I can ask a follow-up question, how do you recommend other companies educate their clients? 
I think that's, uh, I would say, um, biggest challenge every entrepreneur has to solve. Mm -hmm. So you need to know your customers and find out what is the best way to convey the message to them. So how do your customers respond better, right? Is the webinar a good option? Is it a newsletter that you're going to push in? Or do you have to do small you know, TikTok videos? Or have things on a Facebook advertisement, right? So you need to know your customers very well where you are going to get good ROI on what you do. And that's what we did in early days for Inazoom. We invested a lot with Isla. Isla's uh, trade shows, Isla conferences, and Isla magazines. So we were there and we talked about it. Then uh, we had our customers and talk about the value that a SaaS product would bring to the table. So to each other, right? So it's just a combination of things that we'll have to do creatively to figure out how do you make that impact to your uh, uh, prospects so that they understand what you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's hard, I'm not saying, but you need to come up the creative ways. That's what I'm saying. If you just keep on doing the same thing, you may not get story, but you'll have to just put a focus on understanding your customers better and uh, come up with a solution. If, um, I want to ask you one more question. question. Sure. If you could if do you it over, what would you have changed and why? If I could do it to over again, about a probably scores scaled much faster than what we are done. I would have basically probably been in more countries than what we're today. So I think we could have scaled much faster and much more aggressively for Inazoom. I mean, we are doing well and we are the uh, leading uh, provider of case management in the United States. But there are other countries, they still are not solution, which are as strong as the uh, products that are out there in the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. So if I had to leave, I had to leave, look back, I think our goal is to basically, I would have been, when I would have been more aggressive in the international market. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what we're focusing right now. We're looking at how do we take our solution while we continue to stay focused on our, on our U.S. immigration. We're looking at how do we scale ourselves to other parts of the world uh, offering immigration solution. Yeah. As I meet more people and talk to more people on the international space, you realize that a lot of what we think about is very inbound focused and U.S. focused and maybe, let's say, North America focused. Now, Canada is very much on the map. Um, you know, U.K. is always, you know, with Brexit, U.K. immigration was on. But every country, to the point you made earlier, every country has an immigration system, whether it's really uh, sophisticated and has really you know, automation, government automation, or it's you know, or it's something where every day you come into the regional government office and something changes, uh, wh whatever it may be, everyone has an immigration system. And really the question would be, in my vision, sometime down the future, the ideal world would be a single, singular platform, maybe multiples of them, because, you know, we, do, we need some competition, but, you know, a platform where people from anyone in the world doing inbound, outbound, et cetera, immigration can really put all the resources into that um, you know, into that platform and have everything that they need in, in their at their fingertips. Um, so, yeah. I think I do agree with what you're saying with the uh, influx of a lot of tech products in legal tech as well as in immigration. I think we'll get there. Uh, I think legal tech and immigration tech will go much faster in the next 10 years than it did in the last 20 years. And uh, yeah, I think the you know, Legal tech is going to have a great future next 10 years. I'm I'm firm believer in that. 
just look at what all is happening around us. It's amazing. I agree with you 100%. So for anybody out there listening who is, uh, you know, building an immigration technology or legal tech startup or company, keep going. You'll get there. We'll all get there together. So Umesh, thank you so much for your time. I want to ask you one fun question to join. You know, you're a, you're a tinker, you're a builder. You, you, you know, you built two companies before you really landed on INS Zoom and, and took it to where it is today. If INS Zoom wasn't in your life and you had unlimited resources, what kind of solution would you solve with technology in the world and why? And it could be really serious or it could be as interesting and silly as you want. I think if I'm, I mean, as I said, I've been always passionate about software and uh, you know, building a software product. So, I mean, if I, if it's not immigration, what is that I would have done? Uh, I don't have an answer because I promised a top thought of at least 100 ideas between 96 through 99 to figure out which one we want to do it. Just like, I never zeroed on anything unless I met a prospect who's willing to buy or who believes in the solution that I'm providing. So even today, if I had to do something else, I'm going to look for someone, you know, there's a problem and if you can find a solution, if they're willing to pay, then I get my uh, match, then I'll move on. That's how I look at it. True businessman. Answered as a true businessman. <laughs> um, well, Umesh, thank you so, so much for your time. And, you know, um, we've got a bunch of, uh, just as a shout out, we have Shiv here who says, hi, Mesh. Great to hear the INS Zoom journey. Very inspiring. Thank you, Shiv. Yeah. So what a, what a, what a great story. And, and so cool too, right? To hear the fact that you were a startup. Everyone was a startup. If we want to use that word, everyone started somewhere. And I think to hear those initial stories just reminds us that anyone else could get there, whatever industry they're in or whatever they're trying to do. So, you know, thank you for sharing. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate your insights. I have a lot of homework to do based on what we've talked about. So really, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Roman. Thanks, everyone who's listening to this uh, podcast. Again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.